right. Welcome to the Polaris Podcast. This is Jeff Powell, Managing Partner of Polaris Wealth Advisory Group. Uh, today with me, I have Jeremy Whitbeck, Partner of uh, Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, as well as Matt Erickson, our Senior Portfolio Manager. Uh, today, we are going to flip the switch. Normally, I'm not doing an intro, and normally, I'm not doing a lot of the questions uh, uh, that are being asked, but uh, we're going to flip the switch a little bit uh, as we talk about uh, active versus passive management. I really wanted to get some thought leadership uh, with Jeremy being a CFA, uh, obviously with Matt Erickson having the uh, decades of uh, manage portfolio management experience. Uh, obviously, uh, I come with a, a few years of experience myself, uh, but I thought it would be kind of fun to flip the switch and actually uh, be the person asking the questions today rather than being the one answering the majority of them. Uh, so I'm going to actually just hop into this subject matter uh, with active management and passive management, you know, it obviously has been a subject out there in the news for uh, decades now. But perhaps, Jeremy, uh, if you would for me, you know, when we talk about uh, investment management, could you maybe describe the, the four main uh, ways that uh, investment management firms manage money for us? Yeah, definitely. So when we look at uh, asset management, there are really two extremes, and that is on the uh, the most passive side, your buy and hold type strategy, and then on the other extreme, your most active is market timing. And then you have a couple of others in between. The one that uh, most people are probably pretty familiar with, given that the majority of money is managed this way, is uh, what's called strategic allocations, which is based on modern portfolio theory. Here, uh, for those people that aren't as familiar with that, Harry Markowitz did a lot of work in the 50s and found that there were benefits on holding uh, different assets together uh, to gain things like diversification benefits and really laid a framework that is still pretty well followed today. Um, so you have strategic and then you also have tactical management. And tactical is where you start to get uh, much more active in making meaningful shifts within the portfolio. So tactical is where you uh, will incorporate forward research and forward uh, analytics and make uh, portfolio decisions within the uh, the construction of the uh, assets being managed to try to meaningfully uh, either lean into areas of opportunity and strength and lean out of areas or completely remove yourself from areas of weakness. And, and Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, where, where do we fit into the mix of things? Yeah, we're strong believers that the way that we can bring the greatest value is by being tactical in what we do. Um, that uh, that is where we can fully incorporate the research and really uh, bring the value that uh, clients are looking for us in terms of managing their money. And so with that being said, I mean, you, you went through uh, four ways. We're one of those four ways, but it sounds like modern portfolio theory is how the great majority of uh, firms that a listener may actually run into. Can you kind of go into a little bit more detail about uh, you said there was framework Talk to me about the, the three main things that the, uh, the framework of uh, how a modern portfolio theory uh, person will work. And then obviously we'll get into uh, a little bit more of how we manage money in a minute. Yeah, so uh, modern portfolio theory uh, really looks at a lot of historical data points to figure out or calculate, I should say, rather, the allocations that are going to be used within a portfolio. And so the reason why you'll often hear this described as kind of driving looking through the rear view mirror is because it's looking at historical data. So typically when you build a modern portfolio theory model, you're incorporating things like correlation. So correlation is looking at how assets zig and zag together. 
you're pulling in the historical return, and then you're also pulling in the historical standard deviation, or which is a fancy word for saying the historical risk of an asset, and then using some pretty complex math that comes up with an allocation on how much you want to have in each of your individual asset classes. So the, the big challenge with that, and I would argue the biggest problem with that, though, is that we've learned that historical results are a terrible indicator of future results. And so when you're building a portfolio based on historical data, it really is blindly going into the future. Um, and that's where we uh, deviate greatly from the pack in the way that we manage money and being tactical with that. We're strong believers and have a lot of conviction in using that forward research in the portfolio decisions that we're making, which is why we are a true pure tactical investment uh, management firm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that the you know, one of the examples that I always like to use about how we were getting out of energy, for example, back in 2014, uh, it wasn't forward forecast to think that oil prices would actually hit negative numbers, uh, but it was looking at uh, really – uh, the weakness within a particular sector of the market. And it took years for the average modern portfolio theory person to get out of those particular areas. Matt, uh, shifting over to you for a minute. Uh, I mean, obviously, part of uh, what Jeremy just was talking about is that uh, modern portfolio theory uh, investors are, are using a lot of passive investment management uh, to create asset allocation using ETFs, using mutual funds. But um, Maybe you could just give us uh, a one-minute, two-minute history of uh, passive management uh, and, and why it's actually kind of come into existence uh, and, and why it's so prevalent today. Okay. So, yeah, I, I would say we've got a, a pretty long history here of, of passive managers outperforming active. But that really started back in, in the mid-70s. I believe it was 1974 when Jack Bogle launched the first index-based mutual fund, and that was off of the S&P 500. If I'm not mistaken, it was 1993 when the very first ETF was launched, exchange-traded fund, right? So basically the same thing as an index mutual fund, except it trades intraday, whereas a mutual fund is priced at the end of the day. Uh, but we've really seen a, a tremendous amount of growth in that passive space. So to kind of put that in context, if you just go over the past 10 years, there's roughly between index-based mutual funds and index-based uh, domestic equity ETFs, there's essentially been a, a money flow, so fund flow of $1.8 trillion into those index-based equity products. And surprise, probably not surprisingly, I guess, you've seen about $1.8 flow out of active managers. So you've really had a, a few things going on here, Jeff. There's the proliferation of the ETF marketplace as a whole, right? I mean, originally it was just SPY, the S&P 500, then a mid-cap 400, then it started breaking into sectors. And, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the average investor didn't use those things. Now everybody's using them, right? So what that's done is, is lead itself to, I think, quite a few inefficiencies in the market which I think actually put us in a, in a very, very good place. Uh, so to put that in context, you've got over the past 10 years, you've gone from 25% of U.S. equity ownership was, was owned by indices or index-based product, if you will. Now that's closer to 50%. So what that's done is drive up value in the largest stocks to the point where now the five largest stocks, which we refer to as the Fab Five, um, which we can get into more if we want to a little bit later, but you know, make up as much as 25% of, of the index itself, of the S&P 500.
But what happens when you see all this money going to indexing, one, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? We've got indices that to a point have outperformed. If you were to look at the, the SPIVA report, for example, which is the S&P uh, indices versus active report that comes out biannually, it measures essentially what percentage of active managers have outperformed uh, passive indices. And over the past 10 years or so, it's been about roughly, and it depends on the category, but roughly 90% of active managers have outperformed. So you can kind of understand why the industry is driven that way. They've been looking for lower fees, you know, they, but they've, at the same time, they've, they've thrown in the towel on generating any modicum of outperformance, at which point I think you got to ask yourself, how is it that these active managers are trying to outperform? What is it they're doing wrong? And what do we or should we do differently to give ourselves a greater probability to outperform? And, and I think tactical is the first kind of rung in that. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's it's been a very interesting thing to see uh, the numbers uh, and, and how much they've climbed. I mean, it's, it almost seems like uh, people are giving up uh, with regard to trying to outperform a like benchmark. Uh, and obviously, with uh, indexing shares having such low cost, trying to control uh, costs that are involved with it. Um, when we look at uh, tactical investment management, obviously, you know, we're not the type that's going to sit around and, and sit back and uh, be okay underperforming an index. And obviously, we, we take great pride in uh, bringing value to the table. Um, perhaps, Matt, you can kind of tell me a little bit more. Uh, you know, again, there's three main points uh, that we kind of talk about with where we bring value to the table, one being tactical, the second, uh, the concentration uh, that we'll take within a portfolio, and the last thing uh, being sector agnostic. Kind of take us into tactical investment management, uh, you know, where do you think that we're bringing value uh, to the table by being tactical? Okay. So, yeah, there's three things we should probably touch base on there, and you hit them uh, him perfectly there. So one is tactical. That is, in its simplest sense, the way I look at that is aligning underlying portfolio holdings with prevailing market conditions, right? It's really just as simple as that. I mean, there are times when the market is going to favor higher beta versus lower beta, which is just a basic way of saying the market's favoring higher risk uh, securities and then at different times favoring lower risk. There's also different factors that can come into play. There's no one factor that works all the time. So tracking whether it's a quality factor, momentum factor, volatility factor, whatever it might be, and looking to see what essentially what is in favor, um, we can adapt our underlying holdings to those market conditions. And when you do so, you can mitigate, most importantly, I think, the downside risk when markets pull back. The other way you can do that, obviously, is is by raising cash, which is another thing we've done here in some of the portfolios. So the, the next step, I'd say, is investing. You know, in order to outperform, I think you got to have the three things, right? So tactical, invest with a relative degree of concentration, be sector agnostic. So I covered well, tactical. Let's let's, uh, let's, um, yeah. let's let's stay with breaking it down because uh, I think that'll be easier for our viewers okay. to, to kind of listen to that. And you know, one of the things you were talking about is again, um, you know, with with shifting from higher risk to lower risk. Uh, you know, I think the other things to really kind of hit on that I think is very thematic from our standpoint, um, you know, is, is some of, of how we have raised cash and, and certain strategies. Uh, for example, within our uh, more balanced strategy, our rising dividend growth and income strategy, uh, for example, which is historically a 60-40 
uh, strategy, we had ourselves down to 30% equity. And our growth and our, mm-hmm. our rise dividend growth strategy and our global growth and our socially responsible strategies, we were down to you know anywhere from 45 to 48% stock and the rest is residual cash uh, because those strategies don't go into bonds. Um, Jeremy, Matt was going to start getting into the other two areas, but uh, you know what I'd like to do is maybe hear from you on uh, really kind of the value uh, that's brought to the table by being a little bit more concentrated in our portfolios. Can you kind of hit on uh, the value that's being brought to the table there? Yeah, so I mean, diversification is one of those things where it really got hit pretty hard um, when the concept was understood. And unfortunately, I think the industry suffered a little bit of that too much of a good thing where diversification is important. Um, never would recommend someone have all their portfolio in just a, a handful of positions. However, there's a limit as to where you really start to get a meaningful benefit from diversification. And it actually, at some point, it really starts to water down the portfolio and it uh, ensures that you're going to capture mediocrity within the portfolio when you get too far. Um, what the research shows is actually the ideal number of holdings within a portfolio is in that 20 to 30 range. And the reason for that is you still get the benefits of diver- uh, diversification, meaning that if you have one stock that just really uh, plummets and falls uh, significantly short of expectations, it's not going to sour the entire portfolio. But on the same token, you're able to benefit from your research. When you limit yourself to 20 to 30 holdings and you have an, uh, a good earnings report, right, that company has enough weight within the portfolio that it can actually elevate the returns. Now, contrast that to what's typically done today where you have mutual funds that not only have hundreds, but in some cases thousands of holdings. If one of those thousand holdings has a good earnings report, it doesn't mean anything. In fact, it doesn't really do anything within the portfolio. It's just too small and too insignificant. And so diversification is important, but unfortunately, I find that it's often abused and, and completely misunderstood as to how it should be used appropriately. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, what, what I think that we've certainly seen through a lot of our competitors uh, that are investing in individual securities rather than using mutual funds and ETFs is that they're almost closet indexers because once you have gotten out to 40, 50, you know, 100 stocks, uh, as you're saying, a, a big movement in one of them isn't going to change anything. Um, within our focus strategies, uh, the focused income strategy, we're, we're going in with 5% positions, 20 stocks. Uh, the concentrated, which again would be you know, really only used as a supplement uh, to a diversified portfolio, is going in with 10 positions. Uh, and then even in our most diversified strategies, we're, we're in the very low 30s. Uh, you know, going in with 3% positions uh, per so that when they are in that situation that, that we're actually able to add some value being brought to the table. Uh, Matt, you were, you were earlier kind of hitting on, again, the three areas. So we've already kind of hit a little bit on tactical. So uh, tactical obviously meaning that we're shifting uh, from high risk to low risk. Um, we're moving from cash, you know, from stocks into cash or maybe stocks into bonds, uh, depending on strategy. Um, we're, we've already talked about, you know, that we believe in going in with a little bit more conviction uh, and, and believing in the research and, and really some of the themology that we've seen going on within this market. Um, but really, you, you've, in your article, you hit on a third thing, which is sec- being sector agnostic. Uh, so maybe kind of take our, our listeners through a little bit more of why being sector agnostic matters. Okay. So the, the three things we're talking about, 
here anyway, that the tactical investments relative degree of concentration and sector agnostic. Like I said, that's, that's to me what gives an active manager the, the chance to outperform. And I think this goes back to the whole, and again, to put it in context, if you've got 90% of active managers uh, failing to outperform, what is it they're doing wrong? Well, one of the biggest things they do, and just to, to reiterate what you said a few minutes ago, is they're really closet indexing. They'll look at a respective sector for their benchmark. So, for example, one of the strategies I run is, is focus value, and the benchmark for that is the Russell 1000 value index. Well, historically, roughly 20% of the Russell 1000 value index is financials. And so the average active manager in that category is going to look to, if, if they're overweight financials, they're going to be, let's say, 22% financials. And if they're underweight, they're going to be, let's say, 18%. But at the end of the day, they're really not adding any discernible value, particularly if you consider how many stocks they're holding, like, like Jeremy was just covering a minute ago. So we personally believe that, look, if, if you're an active manager and if you want to give yourself the chance to outperform, you don't just have to have conviction in the securities you're holding, but in where you want to have exposure to the markets from a sector perspective. Uh, historically, during periods where I haven't liked financials at all, uh, regardless of the fact they're 20% of the benchmark, uh, I don't, I haven't owned them, right? Now, the same, the same thing about energy, you know, and, and the, some of those sectors that you have a higher conviction, you know, longer term, like technology or consumer discretionary, you know, I think those warrant at times certainly a, a heavier weighting than the benchmark. And I think that's one of the big reasons we've been able to generate really some meaningful outperformance over time, but also, you know, first and foremost, focus on putting together an underlying allocation that is going to mitigate downside risk, right? I mean, you think about what financials did in 2008. It wouldn't take a rocket scientist to say, hey, I want to be out of these, right? And yet a lot of managers just rode that down. We don't ride things down. So, again, that reiterates that whole tactical theme of we're looking to align ourselves with prevailing market conditions. Um, we're looking to do it by investing with a relative degree of, of concentration. And, again, if you're going to stand the chance to outperform, which you have, and, and add a significant amount of value for your clients, uh, I really think you need to be sector agnostic. Otherwise, you're just you're an index hugger, you're closet benchmarking, and you're in that 90% for that reason. So it's very much how we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace. Jeff, I've actually I found that for a lot of people, tactical investing is what they intuitively expect a manager to be doing for them. Um, and I don't know that a lot of people understand that that's actually not what the typical relationship is. And Matt hit on a couple of key points, which is that we have confidence and conviction in what we do. I actually want to uh, ask you a question here, being our chief investment officer. What emboldens Polaris to be willing to act on that conviction and confidence when we don't see that in most of the uh, the industry as a whole? How do we go into this position knowing that we can depend on our analytics and, and know that we're doing the right thing when it seems like most others aren't willing to uh, take that next step to uh, to add meaningful portfolio value? Uh, it's a great question, Jeremy, and I, I think it kind of boils down to uh, a few different things that, that, that we do. I think that's very different than, than most other firms. Um, for us, it's all about statistical probabilities. We, we're, we're playing a game of math when it really comes down to it, and uh, the the biggest part is is to have the odds in your favor. You know, so if you're sitting there thinking about, you know, the, the average person thinks that uh, investing is like gambling, and for them it truly is. Uh, so they're playing a game of blackjack, and they don't understand 
how many high cards versus low cards have been played, and they act shocked when the house wins the wins their pot of money. We're sitting there doing the statistical probabilities, and as we see the the uh, level of risk going down for us, we add a, uh, additional conviction to higher risk investments. And as risk goes up, we try to take some of that risk off the table, either by shifting uh, from high risk to low risk stocks or to take uh, lower positions in equity than we would historically. Um, but from there, I think that probably one of the biggest things out there is ego kills. You know, to me, it's not about being right. It's about being right at the right time. And so you can have the greatest ideas on the face of the planet. If the market doesn't agree with you, you're wrong. Uh, so we don't fight the Fed. We don't fight the tape, meaning the direction of the market. Uh, we try to check our, our egos at the door and realize that you know, by doing that, as long as we're getting it more right than wrong, we're adding value to the situation. But you, got, you can't make a mistake into uh, something even bigger uh, by getting married to a situation and insisting that you're the smartest person in the room. Uh, by doing so, that's a, a really quick way of being separated from your money. That makes sense. And just on a personal note, um, that's one of the things that I love the most about Polaris is that you bring that discipline to the table, and uh, I think the results uh, speak for themselves and what we've been, been able to accomplish there. No, I appreciate that. Um, so let's wrap things up with, with uh, some lessons learned. Matt, you know, obviously we've been dealing with kind of a, a crazy year. Um, and looking at that crazy year and what we're dealing with, you know, tell me what, what your biggest takeaway is from this year, uh, how volatile the market is, and if you were to do something differently uh, with what you know today compared to uh, where we were, say, in early February, what would that be? So, one, and this goes back to the indexing um, from my perspective. I mean, the biggest lesson learned, in my opinion, is, is largely driven by the demographics of this market and the trends and what they've been favoring, right? If you've seen equity ownership by indices go from 25% to 50%, you know, at the rate that it's been going, and it's continued, by the way, at an alarming rate this year, right? So what that does is it creates, to me, alarming inefficiencies in the market. And I think we saw that earlier this year in February and March as the market sold off and sold off, um, you know, obviously in a, in a very big way you saw that correlations essentially went to one with all these stocks, particularly with the larger stocks in the indices, right? Because if you spook those index investors and they control 50% of the assets, you know, the, those companies are going to sell off in unison. And so that makes it a little harder, or you could argue a lot harder, uh, to play defense in those situations, particularly if you're trying to play defense um, or navigate within the mega cap space because those are the companies that are most greatly influenced um, by those massive flows. So to me, that that would be one of the major lessons learned. And quite frankly, at the same time, I think that opens up significant opportunity for an active management shop and in particular a, a tactical firm taking the approach that, that we do, right? Because we can exploit those inefficiencies in the market. You know, I would pound the table and say, this is really the, the best opportunity for us going forward is if those inefficiencies continue to exist, we can continue to generate significant alpha for the clients. But to me, that's, that's one of the biggest lessons learned. It's why I wrote the article, because it became so evident after seeing that dislocation and, and how these trends have impacted um, the way, you know, we, we basically have gone away from fundamentals in the market and, and sentiment, uh, excuse me, and sentiment is really driving quite a bit more, which could be frightening, right? So, um, but good for us. 
That's a really good point. Uh, you know, to answer my own question, uh, kind of going uh, back to that uh, same thing and kind of trying to wrap things up, you know, one of the things you talked about was correlation being one. Uh, for our listeners to kind of understand that, um, what correlation, uh, you know, is, is having everything kind of moving together or not moving together. A correlation of one means that there's, um, you know, everything is moving uh, lockstep together. Uh, they're either going up or going down and at the same rate, which is, from a historical standpoint uh, is not the case. Um, I, and I think that you kind of, uh, I guess, in a way, uh, stole a little bit of my thunder, what I was going to say, which is the same thing, which, uh, you know, typically, you know, we have uh, in ha half of our strategies, uh, we're going to go no more than 10% cash, and we're going to move from, from high beta to low beta, high risk to low risk, um, and uh, keep ourselves fully invested. The other half, uh, which, uh, you know, again, uh, has a slightly different tact to it, which will go to cash, we also did the same thing. We, we went to cash, but we also probably left a little bit too much uh, money on the table as we moved from what we consider to be high risk to low risk. And as I've described, you know, baby and bathwater were both thrown out together uh, in areas of the market that have historically been very uh, low risk. We talk about the SHUT index, S-H-U-T. Uh, so staples, healthcare, utilities, and telecommunications are historically the areas of the marketplace that you can run and find shelter, especially in downward markets. And it simply wasn't a case in, in uh, February and March. Uh, to what you were saying, Matt, uh, exactly, we had the fastest drop in the, the market's history of, of dropping 30%. It was 22 trading days uh, to go down 30 plus percent, which was faster than it was during the Great Depression, faster than the 87 stock market crash. Uh, we've never seen anything quite like it. So we really have dealt with uh, markets that uh, that are truly unprecedented. Um, really appreciate the insight from both of you, Jeremy. Thank you very much for your insight, Matt. Thank you for yours. Uh, again, we'll Absolutely. be back next week with uh, some new and more fun things to talk about. Uh, perhaps elections, perhaps something else. But uh, in the interim, uh, be safe uh, and be healthy. Thank you for listening. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.